Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British History, a channel on the New Books Network. To our eyes, 18th century Britain can look like a world of opposites. On one hand, everything was new. Political parties and a prime minister emerged in parliament. Their antics were recorded by an expanding political press whose products were read and debated in London's many coffee houses. The Enlightenment began in Scotland and unleashed new ideas about natural law, natural rights, and the perfectibility of society that drove the great democratic revolutions. On the other hand, the 18th century was defined by the survival of the old. For some historians, power continued to be channeled through the institutions of the ancien regime, the monarchy, the church, and the aristocracy. But that world was changing. Public opinion and public attention turned to other places, namely Britain's expanding global empire that brought new goods fresh ideas, and very diverse peoples into British consciousness. Ryan Hanley is British Academy postdoctoral fellow and a senior research associate in history at the University of Bristol. In Beyond Slavery and Abolition, Black British Writing, he seeks to shift the focus of Black history away from slavery and abolition and towards something more complex. In a series of beautifully turned intellectual and cultural biographies, he reveals the contribution of Black writers to politics, culture, and the arts in 18th century Britain helping it along the way to becoming modern. Ryan Hanley joins me from Bristol. Ryan, it's great to talk to you. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is your first book, uh, and congratulations. I wonder if you can tell us about how you framed the project and the journey that the book and you uh, took from turning this from a doctoral thesis into a first published book. Um, Yeah, so the uh, journey of this uh, book began even before I started doing my PhD. Um, So I sort of first encountered some of the questions that I'm trying to answer in the book uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, And so during my uh, my second year of my undergraduate degree in English literature, um, I was given uh, a research project uh, to do. And one of the the options on the list of projects was um, find out a little bit more about James Albert, you call Saul, Gronio Saul. And I thought, well, this is a name that I've absolutely never heard of. Who is this person? Uh, it turns out he's the, the first ever uh, published black author in Britain. Uh, and we knew very, very little about him. Um, so I went off uh, as a second year undergrad and did a little bit of archival research. Uh, and I was lucky enough to find a manuscript letter by Gronio Saul that had been misfiled in uh, an archive in Cambridge and um, had uh, uh, never been kind of um, allocated to Gronio Saul. So uh, that was the sort of fir- my first taste of historical uh, research, of proper kind of archival research. Um, but it was also uh, interesting to see that in that letter, Gronio Saul is taking an interest in, in uh, things that are beyond slavery and abolition. He's not just talking about slavery in the way that uh, all of the kind of secondary literature seemed to suggest that he would be. He was talking about religion and found uh, religion to be more important than uh, the question of slavery. 
So I pursued that sort of thread of uh, research into uh, the black intellectual presence during this period, um, all the way through uh, the masters, and, and then I did a PhD on the subject, which brought together a group of these authors. Um, I guess for me, the um, biggest kind of step in the journey from taking it from uh, a PhD thesis and, and turning that into a book was actually uh, the, 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 the move away from the kind of um, ex exactitude and precision of an exam piece um, into uh, making some uh, bolder claims about uh, the significance of these authors and their centrality to a whole range of issues. So in a PhD thesis, you know, you're encouraged to be, uh, to couch, to hedge your bets a little bit and to, and to couch uh, um, the sort of claims that you're making in very cautious terms. Um, whereas in a book, I think that you need to stand up for yourself a little bit more and to, and to make strong claims. Uh, and in my case, that's about the significance uh, and the importance of these black intellectuals to a whole range of uh, British social, cultural and political history. So there's some excellent advice for any PhD <laughs> students who are, who are listening to us. Uh, uh, be safe, then be bold later. So you mentioned, I mean, this goes back to your undergraduate. So can you take us through the process um, you encountered Gornisaw very early on, but how did you, uh, how did the process of choosing authors uh, take place? I mean, how did you choose them? Why did you choose them? Uh, which ones were well known? which ones were obscure. And we'll come back to specific examples in a second, but I think just more broadly speaking, how did you, how did you select, how did these people come to your attention? Well, in some ways it's a, it was a relatively easy process because there's, uh, I knew I wanted to work on the late 18th, early 19th centuries. It was just the period that it always kind of held my interest the most. And it's also the period that overlaps with the abolition uh, movement. So um, the, the period 1770 to 1830 was my kind of starting point. And there's actually a very small pool of published uh, black British writing uh, to emerge during that period. There's a bit more um, if you uh, take into account the whole Atlantic world. So there's um, American authors uh, alongside there that, that aren't in, in the book because they've been slightly better covered by the existing literature. Um, as a PhD student, my kind of uh, main thing that I wanted to do was um, everyone except Equiano, because Olauda Equiano is such a well-known figure and that there's actually been quite a lot written about him and his contribution, largely to the anti-slavery movement, it should be said, but there's a little bit of acknowledgement that he was uh, an important political figure in his own right. Um, now, when I went to turn that into a book, um, I added a chapter on Equiano, partly because that's what people want to read about, um, and uh, partly because it's a good way to kind of introduce people who might have only encountered Olauda Equiano and the interesting narrative. Um, uh, 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 it's a good way to kind of draw people in from that position into this whole kind of range, this whole constellation of uh, black intellectual stars in, in Britain at the time. Um, so uh, the specific uh, authors that I'm covering in this book um, are, it's a good test if I can remember all eight, <laughs> uh, uh, saw Gromio Saw, um, the next one is Ignatius Sancho, uh, the um, third author is Otto Bar Caguano, the fourth is Olauda Equiano, um, the fifth is Boston King, the sixth 
is John Jay. Uh, the seventh is Robert Wedderburn, and the eighth is Mary Prince. So those are in chronological chronological order. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the we will we're going to deal with with uh, a, a group of those uh, later on. We we don't have the time to go through uh, the whole lot of them, um, but. So you, on one level, this book is is a series, as I said in the introduction, of sort of in, uh, intellectual cultural biographies where you sort of position uh, uh, these people. And, and the second layer of interpretation in the book, which I think is really compelling and interesting, is is the focus that you place on networks. Um, uh, and you you divide uh, your networks into sort of three types. There's networks of celebrity, networks of e evangelicals, uh, religious networks. And then finally, uh, networks of, of radicals, political radicals. Um, why and how uh, did you? How did your writers? I guess the question would be: How do they find their way onto and into these networks? Yeah. So um, the kinds of uh, um, the way that I've divided the book up is into the is in these three kind of categories of of networks, and that's the way that I try to situate the black intellectual presence into a broader picture of uh, British. History during this period. Um, so the, the first part of the book is called uh, Black Celebrities, and that's um, Ignatius Sancho, Alada Equiano, and Mary Prince. Um, the argument of that section is, is that um, the, these um, uh, black authors uh, kind of use their um, social networks and their social networks to an extent use them to, to make them uh, famous or well known within Britain, even for a very short time. And um, the, I guess one of the, the key kind of intellectual questions of the book is about the tension between um, the agency of the authors themselves um, and the ways in which their networks are attempting to frame their message to get between us and the authors, if you, if you see what I mean. Um, so in terms of the celebrity networks, they're quite diverse. Um, I think that Equiano is the uh, individual who has um, the kind of strongest uh, um, sense of control over how his personal image is being represented. I think that's something he's really good at. And I guess we can talk about that a bit more later. Um, in the case of somebody like Mary Prince, um, because she has that kind of uh, intersectional identity of, of being a black woman author, um, her uh, uh, tension is, is weighted slightly differently. I think that she possibly has slightly uh, less authorial control over how she's being represented. So the celebrity section is is, is quite a diverse one. And then Ignatius Sancho, his uh, letters weren't published until after he died. So it's a totally different dynamic there as well. Um, in terms of evangelicalism, um, that's really the kind of starting point for uh, black life uh, writing in being published in Britain. Um, black authors are... Uh, kind of drawn into pre-existing evangelical networks, uh, but they choose to kind of navigate them. And in some ways, they are the most internationalist uh, of the types of networks that we're looking at. Uh, but in other ways, they're also the most tightly controlled in terms of the form that the narratives take and uh, the focus of them, because they're always obviously very heavily focused on the kind of spiritual um, experience. Um, so uh, the, the, the way that uh, um, uh, black authors enter the evangelical networks tends to be uh, through a kind of conversion experience. 
Um, and then finally, the politically radical networks, so that I'm focusing on um, Ottawa Kaguano and Robert Wedderburn for that section. Um, that, that's the area for me that sees the most kind of authorial agency and control, because the way that we define radicalism is in, in a sense kind of a, a, as a negative to hegemonic or, you know, kind of mainstream political culture. Um, that means that uh, the um, black intellectuals working in those networks aren't kind of so dependent on um, on their networks financially or in terms of spreading their um, uh, spreading their texts around or distributing their texts because um, they could start to build those networks in an underground way. So those are some of the most challenging um, authors to, to research because obviously they're sometimes doing things that are not legal, so they're not uh, always recorded consistently. But I think they're also the most rewarding kind of uh, authors to look at because you get to see what you really want to see, which is black authors having sort of full control over their creative process, over what they're saying and how they're saying it. The notion of full control is 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 interesting, and I just want to pick up on something uh, that you you said in 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 that last uh, answer, and that is the the question of agency. Are these are these writers in the pure sense, uh, that is to say, autonomous people creating texts and putting them out into the the public marketplace on their own terms, or um, are the texts that we see today the product of other things? And you answer this question in the book. You talk about transcription, edition, mediation, uh, and other things. How did these processes uh, work? How were these texts uh, produced? Um, yeah, so I think one of the key challenges about working on this body of uh, um, you know primary materials, this body of of writing, is that um, many of these authors um, were not literate or not literate enough to write down these life narratives, largely life narratives, um, without the assistance of an amanuensis um, or an editor uh, or or both. So there's a, instantly a methodological question that comes up in terms of research. You know, how do we use these texts? To what extent can we use these texts as kind of uncontaminated perfect reflections of the black experience whatever that is or the black perspective whatever that means um but the answer that i come to in the book in terms of mediation uh and transcription and addition is that maybe that's the wrong question maybe that's not what we should be using these texts for um perhaps we should be thinking about how these texts came to be as they are rather than trying to read them for what we wish they could be as yes, these kind of sort of pure and uncontaminated windows into the minds of, of 18th century black intellectuals. So what I'm interested in is precisely what you just described, the, the, those um, processes of transcription, edition, uh, intercession, and so on. Um, I mean, in, in terms of the, uh, the way that that sort of leads into how we encounter the texts, then the other big question is distribution. And that sort of links in with these with, with the uh, um, networks aspects of the writing. So how are these texts actually getting out there into the world? 
Um, now, in some cases, like in evangelical networks, that's quite easy to reconstruct because you can go to uh, the publisher and then you can go to big databases like 18th century collections online or something like that, see what else the publisher is, is producing. And then you can get a sense of when you go into your into a bookshop uh, and, and you pick up this piece of like writing by, you know, Gronio Saw, for example, um, what's next to it on the shelf? How is it being directed to a particular uh, market, to a particular readership? And then what you can do is then reflexively use that to go back to the texts and look at why they're written as they are. So, you know, as um, uh, just as when you read a novel today or, or, um, or, you know, when you read Pick Up My Book, that's not just the work of one person. It's called a monograph, but it's not just one person's work. It's gone through the hands of editors. It's come to you through a publisher. It's come to you through... Um, a, a, a kind of form of uh, transmission from, you know, from something that I was thinking to something that uh, you're holding in your hands and, and reading and interacting with as an artifact, as well as a kind of floating bit of text in the void. Um, so, yeah, th those are uh, kind of key questions that I'm interested in. They're basically slightly different for each um, of the authors. Um, and as I mentioned before, radical... Um, distribution networks are harder to trace than evangelical ones, for instance. Um, but that's a, a big part of the book is to try to unpick how that works for each individual author. You say in the acknowledgments that this book it itself is the product of many hands, and, and that's that's true. And I suppose this recording is, is part of the book's story. So the, in other words, there's really nothing terribly unusual going on in the 18th century with respect to these authors. This is this is normal for publication, or are are these authors identified and selected by people who who think that there could be uh, money to be made here? Is there anything exploitative about this? Well, the book is called Beyond Slavery and Abolition, but it, it doesn't sort of throw out the question of slavery altogether. Uh, my point here is that um, that uh, in many cases the uh, networks of edition and dissemination transmission um, are kind of keen to publicly associate themselves in some cases with the anti-slavery movement or to make some kind of statement um, around the question of colonial slavery um, or or um, anti-slavery uh, and and often they will uh, um, enthusiastically support uh, the production or the promotion of a piece of writing uh, by uh, an African or somebody of African descent in order to make a bigger statement um, about slavery. So, uh, for instance, um, if we look at the, uh, I gave a talk last night, in fact, here in Bristol, um, about Boston King. Um, and he composed his uh, memoirs while he was uh, staying at Kingswood School just outside of Bristol. And they were published a couple of years later um, at the precise time when uh, the um, management committee of Kingswood School, Methodist uh, Kingswood Committee, um, were really, really keen to make a statement about how um, abolitionists they were uh, and uh, how much they supported, you know, the ending of the slave trade, but also how... Um, abolition could be this very politically moderate thing. And the reason they wanted to do that is because they were keen to make good connections with the um, with, with the administration through the abolitionist William Wilberforce. He was their contact with the kind of pit 
government. So that's just you know one example of how a network very carefully controls the publication and distribution of a particular text because they held on to it for two years after it was completed before publishing it. Um, of, yeah, of how they control that kind of process in order to kind of further their own um, goals. Now, I'm not sure that I would necessarily frame that as straightforwardly exploitative. Um, the way that I think of it is as, as a tension between authorial agency, the degree of control that an author could have over a text, even if they couldn't write it or control the publication process. Um, but the tension between that and, um, on the other hand, uh, the goals and aims of the network that surrounded that author and that text as it was published. Okay, thanks. That's I, I that's very that's very clear. Um, and so I think what we want to do now is sort of turn uh, to discuss uh, four uh, of the writers that you deal with in the book. Um, and I want to begin. Uh, uh, you've mentioned already uh, already Equiano, obviously the most famous. The interesting narrative is available, I think, as a Penguin classic, um, and it's taught. All over the place, certainly here and and uh, in in North America. Um, so, tell anybody who is listening to this who doesn't know who Equiano is, who is he, and and what does he write about, and why is he important? So, um, Alada Equiano, also known as Gustavus Vassa, um, is I uh, probably the most famous um, African uh, or person of African descent in 18th century Britain and probably in, in the world in the 18th century, with the possible exception, I suppose, of the uh, African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley. Um, now, Equiano, as I argue in the book, I think really the, the main reason that Equiano is so famous, is so, so well known, is because his 1789 autobiography, The Interesting Narrative, um, is an explicitly and straightforwardly um, abolitionist, anti-slavery piece of polemic. Um, so he uh, has, well, I mean, to try to give a, a potted um, biography of Equiano is quite difficult because he led such an extraordinary life. He was involved in um, a voyage to the, uh, to the Arctic. He was um, involved in... Um, uh, um, a, 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 an abortive um, slave trading operation on the Mosquito Shore. Uh, he travelled absolutely everywhere uh, around Britain promoting uh, his book and also promoting a particular kind of image of uh, himself as a kind of commodified personality. So he would go on speaking tours um, and give lectures um, and basically uh, uh, um, promote himself and his autobiography as a kind of commercial product. So what I think um, is really important about Equiano is that he helps to develop the modern idea of what a celebrity is, the idea of a personality uh, that you can uh, uh, consume uh, as an as a, um, audience member or, or a participant and uh, feel that you can kind of engage with the product of Olauda Equiano. And that's one of the reasons that he has these two names, Gustavus Vassa, which he uses in his uh, private correspondence, and Olauda Equiano, the celebrity abolitionist, which is the title of the chapter in, in the book about, about him. So 
Yeah, Equiano is uh, Equiano is someone who reminds. There are other people in the Atlantic uh, that uh, Linda Cauley, for example, has written about people who move around uh, the Atlantic world uh, from place to place, uh, and they turn up uh, in unusual places and cut across a whole series of networks and and situations and contexts. Uh, Groniosaw reminds me somewhat of work that Natalie Zeman Davis did about trickster travels, where you have people coming, uh, sort of, broadly speaking, from uh, one very different world into another. Tell us about Groniosaw. Yeah, so Groniosaw is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he's the first published black author in Britain. Um, he is very firmly a um, somebody who's interested in uh, the idea of um, the predestination of the elect. Um, that's the kind of core driving point behind his book. But perhaps I should go back a little bit and, and give a bit more of a biography of him. So Gronos was born in uh, uh, Borno, uh, now in Nigeria, uh, or which is in the area that's now called Nigeria. Um, and he was... Um, kidnapped as a child and uh, sold on the Gulf Coast, um, transported to uh, New York, where he worked in um, as a domestic uh, slave in some of the uh, most important um, evangelical households uh, or households of the, of, uh, the evangelical Dutch Reformed Church. So this is during what's called the Second Great Awakening in America, a kind of massive explosion of evangelical Protestantism across uh, North America. Um, so Gronosaur came of age uh, in, in that kind of milieu. He met some of the most significant uh, Calvinist preachers, including George Whitfield, uh, Theodorus Frelinghuysen, um, and other, other kind of uh, Calvinist or Dutch Reformed bigwigs, basically. Um, and then uh, upon kind of gaining his freedom, uh, he took part in the Seven Years' War. I think it's called the French and Indian War for North American listeners. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Just well, like, to translate there. It used to be called that, but I think we're we're trying to figure out a new name. I think Seven Years' War is back in. But Oh, okay. All right. Well, anyway, Gronioso, um participated uh, as a uh, in, this, in the Seven Years' War for the uh, um, British side. And um, he took part in the capture of Havana and a number of other kind of key incidents that allow us to kind of put a bit of a chronology on his life. Um, and then um, in about the mid 1760s, he made it over to Britain, uh, where he married an English woman. Um, and then uh, the last sort of part of his life was marked as out by this kind of um, impoverished itineracy around various different rural parts of Britain, Norwich and um, uh, Breckmanshire and um, Herefordshire and places that are just, you know, nowhere near London or nowhere near uh, um, uh, um, some of the uh, uh, kind of key um, urban centres of the period. So he gives us a sort of a perspective both on um, how spiritual autobiography works, but also on what it's like to be very, very poor uh, in rural Britain and to be moving around in search of work. So he's, so, he's the opposite of Equiano, essentially. Yeah, so absolutely. So Groniosaur is, is, in terms of his personality, is very kind of self-effacing. He downplays um, a lot of the things that happened to him that uh, most of us as scholars would instantly be able to ascribe to racial prejudice. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, having uh, um, being swindled out of 
uh, um, uh, money by um, unscrupulous uh, um, kind of white people uh, during his travels in Britain. Um, so, so that's a sort of potted biography. But one of the things that's most striking and most uh, unexpected about Croniosaur is that his autobiography um, is not just very quiet about the issue of slavery, but it's, it seems to support the idea that his enslavement uh, was beneficial to him because it helped him to, um, uh, to convert to Christianity. And part of the uh, um, project of work, uh, uh, that I did, I've worked on Gronio for 10 years now, um, but for me, I think the key for him is that Calvinist theology demands that um, you uh, understand and know the word of God, uh, but that you are either predestined to go to heaven or you're not, that you're either one of the elect or you're not, and that you don't need to have any sort of bodily freedom to do that. You only need to be converted. Now, what that means in terms of slavery is that slavery is a kind of benevolent, enslaving somebody is a kind of benevolent act as long as you Christianize them. And that just so happened to, uh, to, to, to match up with the um, goals and aims of Groniosaur's network of patrons, including um, the uh, dedicatee of the uh, autobiography, Selina Hastings, the Countess of Huntington. So she was a slave-owning uh, patron of Groniosaur. So we crossed then the Atlantic, um, the, the opposite side, uh, and we, we were in Bermuda, it's 1788, uh, and Mary Prince is born uh, into slavery and then is, is, uh, loses her family at the age of 10 and then goes on, uh, very similar to at least the, the linking theme here is, is, is movement. Uh, where, where does she go from there and how does she find her way to Britain and uh, into print? So um, Mary Prince is, um, yes, is, is a, a equally kind of uh, mobile figure, although she spends uh, much of her time uh, traveling from island to island in um, the British Caribbean. So she works, um, well, on three or four different islands. Uh, she, one thing I think is interesting about Prince is that she undertakes um, unfree labor in ways that are quite different to what we might imagine as the kind of typical form of plantation slavery. So we might think of uh, tobacco fields or cotton fields or sugar plantations. Um, but what Mary Prince uh, shows in her experiences show is that slave labor um, is actually an extremely diverse kind of phenomenon. It, it brings, uh, it takes in quite a lot of different experiences. So for instance, um, she uh, works harvesting sea salt, uh, which was a, a horrible job. It was extremely bad for you. It was very bad for your um, uh, skin. And she talks about the uh, um, the physical effects of that type of slavery in, in quite graphic detail. But for the majority of her um, life, she's working as a domestic slave, uh, undertaking, um, you know, domestic labor, uh, clothes washing, um, working as a kind of uh, maid to, to the house, uh, to, you know, to, to the uh, um, um, slave owners, basically. Um, it's not until um, 1828 that she comes to Britain with uh, her kind of latest 
um, uh, um, set of uh, slave um, owners, uh, uh, John and Mary Wood. Um, at that point, because of uh, the Mansfield ruling in 17, which is 1772 ruling, uh, that basically allows um, enslaved people to, to leave uh, enslavement and not be compelled to return to slavery if they're within mainland Britain. Um, she ends up leaving uh, slavery. She emancipates herself uh, once, once she gets to Britain, in effect, and um, uh, travels uh, around London and eventually enters the service of Thomas Pringle, who's a secretary of uh, the Anti-Slavery Society in London. And it's while she's living there, so she's working uh, as a maid and living with uh, Thomas Pringle, and it's, it's, it's while she's living there that she composes uh, her life narrative, uh, the life of Mary Prince. Um, one thing I think is particularly tricky, and this goes back to what you were saying about um, the mediation and, and the intercession um, uh, and addition, is that Mary Prince's uh, published narrative um, has this very, very heavy framing by Pringle. So Pringle has edited down uh, the text that has not been written by Prince directly. It's been written down by an amanuensis called Susanna Strickland. Um, so Pringle has very heavily edited this text. And in the introduction, he says, I've, I have uh, trimmed and pruned this text into its present shape to make it more agreeable to the reader or something along those lines. And um, throughout the text, he keeps interceding. He keeps making his presence known with little footnotes to what she's saying. So um, she'll, she might use the uh, expression, uh, the slang bakra, and, it, and then you'll get him saying, she mean, this is a West Indian expression, it means white man. Um, and then you get even more egregious um, intercessions in the text uh, uh, um, that say things like, um, this next paragraph is taken down very nearly from Mary's own words. And that leaves you thinking, well, what's, what's the rest of this narrative then if it's not taken down very nearly from uh, um, Mary's own words? So you can see, the, sorry, so you can see the process of, of the text being shaped uh, it, right there, essentially. Yeah, so it's this almost like Brechtian process where you can absolutely see this really heavy scaffolding that, that Pringle's keen to erect around the text so that you read it in the, it very much in the desired way, you know, that there's one correct way to interpret Mary Prince's experiences, and that's in the way that's most beneficial to the anti-slavery society. Um, so again, the, it's, uh, it, it's a, a really interesting challenge, and it's a really interesting exercise for me uh, anyway, and it's something I've tried to draw out quite a lot in the book. Um, to identify that tension between what what Mary Prince um, may have been, may have been uh, saying in the first instance as a verbal ephemeral kind of uh, process and and what we get in this kind of uh, very heavily mediated edited text with Pringle's fingerprints all over it. You mentioned early on um, the final the the, the third network, uh, if you like, uh, radicalism harder to trace. Now, Robert Wedderburn is is a, a major figure uh, in that context, and I'm really struck uh, in the book where you you begin by talking about uh, the potential roots of his radical outlook, and and you take us back to a point when he's four years old and he sees his mother being tied down and flogged while she's pregnant. Um, can you 
can you tell us where he how he uses that that obvious anger and and where that comes in and shapes his ideas yeah so robert wedderburn is one of the most um interesting i think one of the most charismatic and he was at the time seen as one of the most dangerous uh political radicals in britain and he was up against quite a bit of stiff competition because he was he was writing during the kind of high point of of uh, insurrectionary British radicalism. And he absolutely himself, always throughout his entire life until, until a few years be- before he died, um, attributed that kind of anger and the, his kind of anti-establishment impulses towards those, uh, that, that childhood trauma of seeing the injustice of uh, unchecked power by seeing yeah, his heavily pregnant mother being tied to the uh, ground and 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 flogged. Um, so Wedderburn um, comes to Britain uh, in the late 1780s as a teenager, having served uh, in uh, the Royal Navy, which is another very common kind of experience for the male authors in this book. Uh, the the, the uh, Royal Naval Service is a is a big um, kind of factor of, of migration to Britain, certainly for these authors. It's a big common experience for them. Um, so so Wedderburn comes, comes to Britain in the 1780s. Um, he's interested, first of all, in Methodism by his account, but then he kind of gets a bit jaded and a little bit, um, uh, a, a little bit fed up with the infighting that's uh, um, typical of Methodism during the, the 1790s. There's a lot of breaks in that religious movement. And so like a lot of uh, former uh, service people, uh, in the in the 1790s, he's kind of uh, brought into, or he in, first encounters this uh, radical underworld um, of uh, people operating right on the fringes of legal society and often spilling over into illegal activities. Um, and he becomes involved with a group called uh, the Spensians. So he's under the influence of um, a, a well-established uh, radical called Thomas Spence. So Spence's whole radical um, um, mindset is based around the redistribution of land, about uh, removing kind of oligarchies and uh, redistributing the land um, in an equitable uh, uh, way between everybody fairly as a way to kind of break the tyranny and corruption of, of of the British system. And what Wedderburn's really good at doing is taking that idea that land is the basis of inequality um, and transferring it and applying it to the Caribbean context. So even though he's in Britain, uh, by by the time we get to about 1817, Wedderburn's writing uh, not just kind of polemics, but uh, sort of fairly detailed plans about how enslaved people in the Caribbean can uh, rise up, violently overthrow their masters, and then create this new Spencean utopia where everybody gets equal ownership uh, of of the land, um, and everybody has a kind of equal uh, say in um, in the way that the the laws uh, are administered and 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 um, the way that government works, basically. So Wedderburn's a really really significant link between this British story of uh, political insurgency um, and uh, the uh, you know the well-known story of um, slave resistance in the British Caribbean. Wedderburn's a, a key link between 
between those two radical worlds, basically. We've spoken about the uh, approach of, of positioning uh, some of these authors. And I mean, the, the question that emerges, we've talked about agency and, and the mediation of texts and the circumstances around their production. And I'm aware that every every case in the book is, is slightly different. But uh, if we could sort of step back a bit and, and think of them more broadly, um, are these people what specialists in post-colonialism would call the subaltern? That is, are they outside and underneath colonial and imperial power? Or uh, do the networks that you reconstruct uh, bring them into uh, those structures of power? Yeah, so I think some post-colonial theorists, and I guess the, the famous one is Gyatri Spivak, um, are quite um, pessimistic about um, whether we can recover a kind of subaltern voice. Can the subaltern speak? And Spivak's conclusion often is, is uh, um, no, no, not not really. We 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 can't get those voices um, back. Now, uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure whether I fall down on one side of the argument or the other uh, in terms of whether these texts represent a kind of subaltern speaking, um, as it were. But um, what I do think is interesting about the findings from this. Uh, study from this bit of research is that actually the, the 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 boundaries between the kind of subaltern and hegemonic worlds um, are, are maybe a little bit more porous than we think. Um, we know that. So I've just described Robert Wedderburn, this incredible radical figure, but we do know that um, by the early eighteen thirties, Wedderburn is actually arguing against the abolition of slavery itself. So he's um, arguing that uh, we should be working towards a very gradual kind of um, system whereby uh, um, individual enslaved people are able to work and then purchase their own freedom uh, on, a, on a case-by-case basis, which is totally out of step with what the abolitionists are doing. <laughs> um, but but in, in that sense, uh, Wedderburn is kind of... Um, is, is kind of moving away from the very radical position that's all about violent slave uprisings and overthrowing the system of colonial slavery um, towards one which is, which you know, it's difficult for us to conclude uh, is, is, uh, is speaking for the interests of the kind of subaltern, is speaking for the interest of the enslaved because he's talking about something very gradual. Um, so I think that they there is possibly more to it than that binary idea um, that uh, African uh, descended uh, intellectuals during this period represent this kind of subaltern uh, voice speaking. I think it's a, it's a more complicated and it's a sometimes more disturbing story than that. I wonder, uh, we're coming close to the end. I just have a couple of more questions left. And I guess the... The first one would be a, a sort of a, what what we sometimes ask PhD students, which is the the so what question. How what is this the overall significance, the takeaway? Uh, you mentioned at the beginning uh, that the process of revising the book, you were looking to make bold claims. Uh, what is the bold claim you want to make uh, in this book? So, in a nutshell, it's that uh, black intellectuals weren't 
peripheral to British society, and they weren't only interested in this one uh, um, facet of British society. They, they didn't just care about slavery and abolition. I think that's one way in which kind of the black presence, and particularly the black intellectual presence, has been kind of siloed off from mainstream narratives of British history. So what this book says is that uh, black intellectuals were, were right there at the centre of a whole range um, of movements, and that uh, British history during this period is not just a kind of story about white people, or nor is it a story about uh, white people talking about black people. Uh, black intellectuals were absolutely um, central actors in uh, these networks of power and in these uh, movements and issues that were significant to everyone. And finally, we historians never rest. Uh, you gave a talk last night. You're probably doing something right after this. I know I am. <laughs> yep. Um, so, um, what are you? What am I keeping you from working on right now? What is the What is the next project? So, uh, the next project is uh, is a monograph which is under the provisional title of uh, "Slavery in the British Working Class, 1787 to 1838." Um, and it's a study of the relationship between political radicalism and the anti-slavery movements uh, during that uh, uh, period, um, 1787 to 1838. Um, and it's an attempt to understand uh, how questions around labour and uh, freedom helped to frame working class identity and how the emergence of working class identity helped, helped to frame the uh, slavery debates. That sounds that sounds like a great transition pro project. Uh, Ryan, I want to thank you uh, for your time. And thank you very much for having me. I'm Charles Pryor, and you've been listening to New Books in British History, a channel on the New Books Network. And I've been speaking to Ryan Hanley from the University of Bristol. His book, Beyond Slavery and Abolition, Black British Writing, 1770 to 1830, is just out with Cambridge University Press. <laughs>